The Interchange is brought to you by Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma Energy Solutions provides a unique financing model for battery energy storage systems. Prisma's customized lease options can help you reduce energy demand, participate in both energy and ancillary service markets, improve renewables integration, increase system reliability, and reduce your carbon footprint. There's no designer technology risks, no maintenance hassle, and the upfront capital expense is greatly reduced, especially compared to a system purchase. Find out more at prismaenergy.com. That's P-R-I-S-M-A energy, prismaenergy.com. We're also brought to you by Wood McKenzie. That's our parent company. You might know Genscape as that data company that puts super powerful cameras on farmland to keep an eye on power plants. Well, now you also know Genscape as the latest upgrade to the Wood McKenzie Power Sector supercomputer. As coronavirus rocks the power sector, the Wood McKenzie Power team is delivering actionable, real-time data on how our new reality is shaping demand profiles day by day and outlooks on markets and pricing years into the future. Learn how Wood McKenzie's power intelligence gives your team an edge at woodmckenzie.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, where does the COVID detour take us as we map out the energy transition? From peak oil consumption to behavior changes to impacts on electric cars, we're once again thinking through the practical and theoretical consequences of the pandemic in the near term and well into the future. My co-host Shail Khan is with me. He's the managing director at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Your room is uh, looking nicer and nicer by the day. You have some new plants behind you, some new lighting. You're taking this Zoom thing pretty seriously now. I think I said this once before, but I still think that the best business idea, COVID business idea that as far as I could tell, nobody has taken advantage of is the idea to do physical Zoom backgrounds as a service where you just like deliver me all the stuff that I need to have great lighting and awesome plants in the background and wallpaper and whatever, and then swap it out for me once a month when I get bored of this one and I want to see something new. Nobody's taking advantage of it, so I'm just having to do it myself. I saw a story today that there is an independent bookshop that is that they're arranging books to make you look smart, taking a picture of it and then sending you the Zoom background. 100%. So whatever books you want behind you, they'll take a picture of and send to you. Absolutely. Love it. I would totally take advantage of that. Back on the show with us is Ramez Nam. He's a futurist, an award-winning science fiction author and an energy expert. Ramez, uh, if you'll remember, joined us last August to talk about some of the future scenarios for energy, and the world is in a dramatically different place right now. So who better to have with us to recalibrate our sights? Ramez, welcome. Shale, Stephen, great to be here. Thanks for having me back. You are in Seattle, right? How are things in Seattle right now? Seattle is unseasonably sunny and has been for the entire lockdown except for one week. So I feel very fortunate at the moment. So you're a science fiction writer. Um, do you see elements of science fiction around us when we go through a collective experience like this? Like, how does your brain process something like this? Yeah. I mean, science fiction is very interesting, and science fiction is usually also wrong. And the reason <laughs> sci-fi is wrong, there's a couple of reasons. One, you've, when you're writing fiction, it's got to be believable. And there's a lot of elements today sort of in the, the response to COVID that you couldn't write it down. You're like, you wouldn't believe that level of incompetence. I don't want to get political here, but it's just not, it, it wouldn't make a good story. You'd expect something different. Uh, but two, and this is where people talk about, you know, this will change everything. We're not going to, everybody's going to go to remote work. No one's going to fly anymore and so on. I'm a little skeptical of that. And I think one thing that I see in science fiction is there's basic human desires, right? Like we're primates. We like I don't know, we come from monkeys who groom each other in, you know, physical space and so on. And so, yes, technology and threats definitely change society. But I think it's easy when you uh, get really excited about technology. There's a sci-fi writer or, you know, a, a tech fan or an investor to think, oh, this is just going to change how the world operates and just forget sort of what's inscribed into our DNA and also centuries of culture in terms of what people actually desire and crave. Uh, so I'm that makes me oddly a little bit more conservative in terms of how much I think this will change society in the long term. 
That's so interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. I listen yeah. to so many different podcasts, shows like this, where you have a few different people talking about subjects. Many of them are sort of a political focused or economics focused. And all of the premises of the conversations are, what are these transformative impacts we're going to be dealing with? And that's the premise of a lot of the conversations we're having on this show. I tend to be a little bit skeptical as well, because I think people will sh revert back to their previous behaviors. But I'm also open to these wild changes that we can't foresee. And I'm so fascinated by the fact that you're more conservative. Well, I think that it is going to be a big deal. I think that there, you know, this is the first, maybe not the first time, but this is such a work from home experience. This is people that I'm a business traveler. I used to give 50 talks a year in person, right? And you look at this like, well, how much of that could I have done remotely? So I think it's going to catalyze some new behaviors, but I think those new behaviors are still going to be sort of on the margin and a relatively small percentage of behavior uh, if and when we actually fully recover from this. So I think we'll try to unpack some of those. Let's talk first about a discussion we had in our previous episode with you. When you joined us last year, we talked about the different phases of the renewable energy transition. And one of the quotes that you had was, we are in a new radically different point in history. And we were right squarely in the third phase of the renewable energy transition when renewables can disrupt existing fossil fuel infrastructure on price alone. So this current situation, does it change how you view the phases that we're going through or the phase that we are in right now when it comes to clean energy specifically? I think the shape of the phases is still the same, which is you had first, you know, number one, solar, wind, et cetera, it had to be subsidized. Number two, they were competitive for new power. Number three, they're going to be cheaper to build new solar or wind than to operate existing coal and maybe even sometimes gas. And I don't think that changes the layout of that. I think it can affect on the margin when does when do those numbers uh, appear in different geographies. And I think as we'll get into EVs, in EVs, the ordering of those might actually be slightly different. Uh, so that's an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, I think I agree. Um, I mean, we were already, you know, pre-COVID, we were starting to see this new renewables beating a operating thermal play out in a few places. I've actually been watching really closely with interest um, this company Guzman Energy, which is a kind of nouveau uh, wholesale power provider based in Colorado. And what they're doing that is pretty interesting is they're basically going to these small co-ops, electricity co-ops, um, which, you know, Electricity in the U.S. is fascinating, right? We have 3,000 utilities. A small number of them are big investor-owned utilities, which actually serve most customers. But then there's like a long tail of a couple thousand municipal utilities and co-ops. And so a lot of these co-ops, the way they procure power is they have contracts with a, a G&T, Generation Transmission Provider. Um, hmm. And a lot of these sort of Western co-ops have these contracts that they signed years ago with big G&Ts that are now out of the money versus new renewables. So they're mm -hmm. procuring dirtier power and it's more expensive than new renewables would be. So much more expensive that companies like Guzman can go in and work with a, a co-op, and they've done this with I think three or something like that so far, and basically help the co-op negotiate an exit fee from their hmm. existing G&T contract, which means they're paying a penalty in the like tens of millions of dollars to exit a contract that was supposed to last years longer, replacing that with new build, largely renewables, and despite having to pay the exit fee, still saving money for their customers. So it's this like really thorny regulatory thing, but uh, the fact that that was starting to happen, I think, was an indication that you were right, that we're sort of starting to enter that phase right now. will be interesting to see whether prolonged low gas prices, continued prolonged low gas mm -hmm. prices and so on, impact how much that happens. Yeah, that's super interesting, actually, because like, co-ops, as I'm sure you know, Shale, are still 70% coal-powered in America. Like They're the, the dirtiest power today. Um, I think it's also interesting that there's this phenomenon, this is a bit of a, a tangent, but there's this phenomenon where solar and wind are zero marginal cost producers, right? Like once you've put them on, producing additional energy is free, whereas coal and gas both have a fuel price. And so right now what we're seeing with this suppression of electricity demand, which is not gigantic, it's, it's quite big though, let's say it's 20% down, is the most expensive marginal producers get hit 
And in the U.S., that's coal, with natural gas peakers, but, but really the big chunk is coal. And those coal plants are also inflexible. So not only do they have cost for each unit they're producing, so they're the first ones to get shut off, it's really expensive for them to shut off, right? They're not built to ramp up and down the way gas plants are. So I also wonder if this is going to lead to some coal plants that might have retired in 2022, 2023, uh, to retire a couple years early, if they, whether or not they can weather this period. Yeah, I think that's actually an interesting question. And I I don't know the answer. Um, I do suspect it is making, it's further eroding the economics of a bunch of coal plants that were already suffering to some degree. On the other hand, you know, basically any power producer that has any merchant exposure, any exposure to the wholesale markets is generating less revenue. Now we're seeing yeah. like record low prices in Kaiso in California territory right now. Now, most renewables have the benefit that they are, you know, mostly if not fully contracted in terms of their revenues, but anything yeah. that's sitting merchant is struggling a little bit. And there's been some wind merchant built out over the last few years. So. Right. Yeah. What one of the big unknowns would be, are there political forces in states that keep some of those plants open for economic reasons, right? If you want to preserve as many jobs as possible, do states step in and keep those coal plants uh, from closing down? Or for resource adequacy in the short term, Mm -hmm. right? right? I mean, you know, as much as we could talk about replacing existing thermal with wind and solar and batteries and stuff like that. You can't do it over literally overnight. And so in this immediate period, you actually do need a lot of those resources operating. But we do clearly see the the politics here, right? Like we had in Indiana, we had NIPSCO in Northern Indiana announced their resource plan that they should shut down all coal. And the Indiana state legislature tried to undo that effectively. We had FERC's order that affects the, the Northeast with capacity payments. Um, and to your point, Stephen, this is sort of anecdotal. I talked to an Indian politician last year who said, look, solar is going to be cheaper than coal, but coal is the most important industry in India. So there's no way we're going to let coal plants shut down because it drives so many jobs, which is, you know, we'll see if that manifests or not. But exactly to your point. Just a side note, because this is in the news yesterday and it's super interesting. We just saw this first announcement of something like this um, this week where I think you know what I'm going to talk about. So Great River Energy, which is a utility in Minnesota, um, just announced yesterday they're going to close a coal plant, replace it primarily with wind. That in and of itself is interesting, but not new. But attached to um, all that wind, they signed the first contract for a true long duration energy storage project, which is from Form Energy. We've had Matteo Jaramillo, who's the CEO on this podcast before. It is a friend of mine. Um, it's a one megawatt, 150 megawatt hour project. So I just want to pause on that for a second because we've talked about long duration energy storage before. And sometimes when people talk about it, they, they're like, oh, eight or 12 hours of storage relative to the four hours you typically see from from a lithium ion battery. Um, this is 150 hours of storage. So this is what long duration storage means. Yeah, that's utterly, utterly amazing. Have they released their chemistry? Do we even know what that, what the battery is made up of? Um, I cannot comment. They, they, <laughs> it, you know at the highest level, um, they, you know, in generic terms, but they're pretty secretive about it. Um, mm-hmm. I think for good reason. I mean, to be fair, this project is supposed to come online in 2023. So... It's going to take some time to get there. And even that, it's still a one megawatt, 150 megawatt hour project, you know, compared to like, I don't know, it's a gigawatt plus of wind. So um, this is the first pilot, but nonetheless, it's a marker in time. Yeah. So super interesting project. But so how does that feed into what we're talking about exactly? Well, I mean, I think the big issue is, okay, so it's one thing to say new build renewables will beat operating thermal on a dollar per megawatt hour basis. Um, on the other hand, and the obvious like problem is if you just took, say you had a gigawatt of coal and you replaced it with two gigawatts of wind, because wind has a, a lower capacity factor, you still have all these issues with intermittency of wind, some of which can be solved with diurnal storage batteries that charge and discharge every day, but then you still end up with like these scenarios where you have multi-day low wind, right? Five days in a row of low wind. If you're trying to replace that coal plant one for one, your lithium ion batteries are generally not going to be economic in that scenario. And so that's why everybody has been talking about the need for long duration storage in one form or another, whether it be a battery or, you know, stacking blocks or, uh, whatever hydro. So, um, 
something like that is needed if you want this like one for one replacement for the coal plant. So the world is very different from our last conversation about the phases of the clean energy transition, Ramez. And obviously now we're seeing oil prices in the mid $20 a barrel. And, uh, you know, we'll probably see for many months to come, if not years, oil prices floating in the mid 20s to mid 30s. And at that level, at that price, uh, uh, you know, our parent company, Wood McKenzie, says that the rate of return for renewable electricity projects uh, beats investments in oil, right? So if you're a uh, major oil producer, you're starting to shut down rigs, you are getting pressure from your investors to find projects with a better rate of return. And it turns out that renewables could be that solution. So that's another example of existing fossil fuel activity being pressured by renewable electricity. And one more data point in these phases that we're going through right now. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. If you're an oil major, you're used to a financial model that shows you can get a, you know, 20% IRR, 20% annual return on an oil drilling project. Uh, though there is risk, you might not uh, get the the flow that you want. Uh, you look at a solar or wind project, and you think maybe I can get a 7% return or a 9% return, you know, depending on maybe offshore, I can get a 12 or 14% return. And so some of these companies, American oil companies are out to lunch. Uh, but the European oil majors, the Shells, Totals, Equinors, even a bit BP, have been trying to spend money in renewables and not seeing enough projects that can give them the same kind of returns that they could get by spending the same money on oil. Now, it's a different world, right? And so now what the, the big questions for them are going to be, what do they expect the world looks like five years from now. Because if if they think the price of oil is going to go back to 65 bucks a barrel, then the the economically rational thing, without caring about climate, is going to save their money and wait until the oil prices get heading back up and then invest in more drilling. But if they think there's not going to be such a recovery, or it's going to take a long time, or the recovery is going to be brief that oil demand will finally get back to last year's levels in 2025, but then the peak of oil demand will happen in 2030, then they have to start looking for a different way to invest, and then investing in renewables looks proportionally more attractive. Let's press the pause button on this conversation for a brief moment to talk about our supporters of the show, the people who bring you this show for free. Prisma Energy Solutions is one sponsor. Prisma helps developers, municipalities, and commercial and industrial customers reduce energy demand charges, generate income, increase grid reliability, and meet sustainability goals. Prisma has a five-year lease offering that reduces transaction costs and allows customers to benefit from storage systems without being exposed to the financial and operational risks of ownership. Prisma has relationships with... of ownership... Prisma has relationships with top-tier suppliers and integrators in the battery storage industry, and they'll customize lease solutions to fit customers' needs. There's no designer technology risk, no maintenance or warranty hassle, and the upfront capital expenses are reduced to a minimum, especially compared to a purchase. At the end of a lease term, customers have the option to renew, return, or purchase the battery system, creating even more project value. Visit prismaenergy.com to learn more. We're also brought to you by the team at Wood McKenzie. That's our parent company. Coronavirus is changing the shape of U.S. power markets. Business electricity demand fell when people stopped going into the office, and household demand hasn't picked up the slack. Across the country, demand and power prices have dropped. In ERCOT, the decline in power prices will reinforce the difficulty of financing new projects. In PJM, the near-term loss in loads is going to make oversupply from the recent boom in new natural gas plants even more challenging. And in California, the loss of demand is likely to make it easier for power providers to maintain generous reserve margins. So much happening in different areas of the country, and the Wood Mackenzie Power Team is helping businesses make decisions with confidence and minimize their risk. If this is the kind of market intelligence you're looking for right now, then Wood Mackenzie is here for you. Reach out to power at woodmac.com to learn more about the power analysis that Wood Mackenzie delivers to its clients. Okay, Shale, you have been thinking about electric vehicles. One of the big open questions about how COVID will impact our sector is in EVs. So how have you been thinking through this issue? Yeah, I think this is a an incredibly important question and really, really complex. 
And there's a bunch of threads to, I think, pull apart here. So first, let's just spend a moment on the state of EVs uh, prior to COVID, because I think that'll set us up, which is, um, you know, electric vehicle sales globally have been growing pretty fast. Um, not so much in the U.S. Actually, um, if you, especially if you exclude Tesla, if you exclude Tesla, um, EV sales in the U.S. were actually down last year, 2019, relative to 2018. But there was still all this excitement and momentum that was driven by a combination of the expectation of new models coming out that were going to be cheaper and cheaper and fit more different customers' needs, and investment in infrastructure and new advertising spending and all this kind of stuff. And so I think expectations were that the U.S. was was going to start to see the curve bend up more than it had, um, not necessarily approach the markets that are already seeing high penetration of EVs, like the Nordic countries in particular in China, but still um, positive signs. So then COVID hits. And I think the impacts of COVID and then all the things that come after COVID can be categorized in a few different areas. I think we should talk through each of these kind of one by one. The first is impacts on driving behavior. So how much are we actually driving and what are we driving? The second related to that impacts on charging behavior, because there's a whole business model being built or a series of business models around EV charging for which this is at an impact. Then there's the slightly longer term question that I think is probably the most salient for the long-term picture of EVs, which is buying behavior, vehicle buying behavior. And then kind of related to all those are like, what are the OEMs, the vehicle OEMs going to do? that's selling behavior perhaps, and what is the policy response to COVID going to be? And these things are all mashed together. So let's start with driving behavior. I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a general sense of it. And then Ramez, I'll ask you to, you know, opine, be, be your futurist <laughs> self. Okay. So obviously driving behavior uh, fell off a cliff when everybody, when the shelter in place orders um, came. However, what's been happening recently is that it is coming back fast. Um, there's all this data from like the Apple is releasing this mobility data. And what we're seeing right now is that as restrictions start to get lifted and actually even a little bit before restrictions get lifted, driving miles are starting to return back to normal levels. And there is a possibility that they will actually increase relative to pre-COVID because unfortunately people are starting to drive more than they would have otherwise used public transportation. So we have this like drastic dip in driving and then fast recovery. Do we think that this means that once we come out the other side of this, we will be driving passenger vehicles more than we were prior to COVID? You know, I think this is a great question. I think on the transit side, I think public transit is going to be decimated until uh, people believe that it's not a health risk. And, you know, now we get into COVID forecasting. I don't see us getting through COVID completely for another two, three years, frankly. The, the, we're not going to have a vac. The, the fastest humanity has ever produced a vaccine is four years, right? We failed at suppressing it low, low to get down to zero or get down to where it might be safe. Uh, so I think we're going to have this going on for a long time. And maybe we'll get a culture of ubiquitous mask wearing in the U.S. But modulo that, I think transit's going to be really hit. And that's going to be an upward pressure. The flip side of that is I think the economic impacts are still not fully grasped. And if you go back to the 2008 uh, financial crisis and recession, driving behavior plunged because people felt poor, because they were out of work and they didn't have much money or as much disposable income as they used to. And it wasn't until 2015 that we saw passenger vehicle miles driven in the U.S. rebound to 2008 levels. So that's I think, is going to be a, a suppressing factor that could be larger than the, the transit impact. But we're just guessing. Right. Now, to throw an additional wrench in this, and this sort of gets to buying behavior, but it's a very short-term thing that I think is important to note and relates to EVs. Um, so, you know, new vehicle sales obviously have plummeted as well. Uh, but to the extent that there have been new vehicle sales, uh, it's mostly trucks. For the first time ever last month in the United States, new truck sales exceeded new light-duty passenger vehicle sales in the United States. And so this is speculative. I thought that, that was already happening. It was the trend line, but we had never seen trucks overall exceeding in new sales, exceeding new light-duty passenger vehicles. And, you know, 
this is speculative, but um, my assumption would be this is because those who have still been driving and thus wearing out their vehicles faster during COVID have been essential workers who tend to be um, in jobs that require trucks more often. And the, the reason that's related to EVs is that we don't really have a lot of EV truck models yet. These are exactly the models that were on the horizon prior to COVID that don't exist today. So to the extent that vehicles are being sold right now in the United States, it's trucks, which is not EVs. So I guess I come at this from something like the the three, three phases model, which is I, I view this mostly through the lens of economics, which is, you know, all the EV deployment we've done to date, only like the emissions impact is zero, more or less, right? It's, it's real, but it's like, it's, it's a rounding error. The real impact of it is to normalize EVs in society and to drive the cost down. And the real inflection, like we haven't entered phase two yet. We're still in the, it's not subsidized. That's not what's driving it, but it's emotional behavior. It's people who want to express themselves with a Tesla and so on. So the real tipping point or the real entry of this point where uh, the economics are there are for most people, the way that people make decisions, when buying a new EV is cheaper than buying a gas, gas-powered gas car of the same class. And so that's the biggest question for me, actually. There's a second question of, like, for commercial fleets, it's different because they're the, the OPEX matters. The, like, cost per mile is something that they are more aware of than the consumer is, and, and that is a separate question. But the, the main thing I wonder about is, is we were, like, BNF was showing some numbers saying 2025, a new EV with a 250-mile range would be cheaper than a gasoline-powered vehicle of the same class. That looks very believable to me. We see some vehicles arriving in China, the, the Maple 30X in India, the Tata Nexon EV that are super cheap, like under 20 grand. So that, that still looks about right. Will that point be delayed because uh, there will be less money going into battery gigafactories? Or will it be pulled up because we have a surplus supply of batteries that will drive down prices? I'm not really sure. But all those assumptions were made when gas prices were much higher. And if we see gas prices continue to be suppressed, I mean, those economics will be significantly delayed. So I actually, I, th- I think Ramez is right here. And I think it's important to separate out these two different things, which is the upfront cost of an EV versus an ICE vehicle versus the total cost of ownership of an EV versus an ICE vehicle. So total cost of ownership incorporates the cost of charging versus the cost of fueling with a gas car, right? And so Do that, consumers really care about total cost of no, ownership? No, that's exactly Ramez's point. Exactly. Right. So yeah, they, if you're- battery prices. Right. So there's not a lot of evidence. I mean, this is early days, so we don't have great evidence on anything really here. But from what I can tell, there's not a lot of evidence that total cost of ownership is a, a real factor in the average consumer's decision-making, which means that low oil prices may actually not have a suppressive effect on passenger vehicle EV sales, which is a good thing. Um, Fleets, as Ramez said, are a different story where they actually do take into account total cost of ownership. And so to the extent that low oil prices have a negative impact on EVs, it seems likely to me that it's going to be more in the fleet side than it is on the individual passenger vehicle side. What Ramez was talking about for the individual passenger vehicle side is the upfront cost of the vehicle, not the total cost of ownership. And the upfront cost is a function largely, uh, at least on a comparative basis, largely a function of the cost of the battery at this point. Like that's why EVs are more expensive at this point. Yeah. And some scaling, like EV, other components, the motors and so on will come down and cost the volume too, but yeah. mostly the battery. Right. So yeah, I mean, so I agree. I don't, it's kind of hard to predict, but you know, just sort of first order thinking it doesn't seem clear to me that COVID is going to have a significant impact on the um, the timeline under which EVs are going to become cost competitive on an upfront basis. So that might mean that like, if that's the, the primary driving factor, it might mean actually that COVID does not have a big impact on the, the sort of medium to long-term trajectory of EVs, even if it does have a pretty big impact on the short term, meaning the next couple of years. That's kind of my guess too. Now I will say in in my long queue of un, unwritten blog posts, I, I had one that I wanted to write, which was about how the transition to electric will go faster in commercial vehicles than in consumer, even though it's starting later, because of this total cost of ownership advantage. Because uh, you know it, EVs have historically, as of last year, maybe a quarter of the cost per mile in fuel and 
20% the cost per mile in maintenance. And we see that in like real world data. Um, and so there's a case we made and the more miles you drive a vehicle, like the Amazon delivery truck that comes by every day, that vehicle drives 70,000 miles a year, right? And so that means that as a proportion of its total cost of ownership, the fuel and maintenance is actually higher. So that the equation for fleets to flip over was starting to look very attractive. Uh, but if gas is a dollar a gallon, <laughs> that definitely delays that, that switchover point. So can we talk about the short term sort of next year or so for a minute? Because this is where I think there's like a bunch of mm -hmm. swirling dynamics that are confusing. Um, let me give you a couple of stats to react to. So first, um, for vehicle sales data, as I said, down overall, but huge distinction, at least through March, uh, between the US and Europe in terms of how EVs were performing. So in the United States in March, year over year, sales of ICE vehicles were down 44%, sales of EVs were down 41%. In other words, like vehicle sales down across the board and EVs were suffering just as much. However, in Germany in March year over year, ICE vehicles down 43%, EVs up 98%. In the UK, ICE vehicles down 48%, EVs up 133%. Now that's a, you know, very small data point, so I don't want to make too much of it. Also, there's a, definitely a confounding Tesla factor here because Tesla takes orders mm -hmm. ahead of time and then always has this end of quarter delivery rush. So I'm waiting to see what the April sales mm -hmm. data looks like. But um, do we think this is any indication that EV sales might actually be more resilient in this environment than ICE vehicle sales? I think there's a chance, and I think it depends on where you are. You know, in Europe, people, I think, drive shorter distances in general. In China, there's additional inducements for EVs. Like in Beijing, you have a long waiting list to get a registration for an ICE vehicle because of air pollution laws, but you jump to the top of the queue for, for EVs. So to the extent that governments keep those policies uh, in place, I think that matters. And also, I mean, China, most important market in the world, uh, it's still not totally clear what their post-COVID stimulus is going to be. But when you see them talking about it, they talk about these five or seven sectors, and one of them is EV charging as one of the places of stimulus. So uh, that's the sort of stuff that I think about for the, the short to medium term. Charging is a whole other thing, right? And yeah. charging is an interesting question. So the other thing that happened when we all just stopped driving is that utilization of public chargers went effectively to zero, right? Just like utilization of gas stations probably went effectively to zero. Now, the question of what that's going to mean for the future of EV charging is kind of interesting because, you know, for the most part in the United States today, public EV chargers are not dependent on charging revenue. Mm. It's because it's actually not like economic yet. Yeah. There are exceptions to that. So EVgo is probably the primary example of this. They operate a network of um, DC fast chargers, public DC fast chargers that are dependent on revenue. But like most public chargers are paid for by a workplace or something like that or by a Whole Foods. And so there's this complicated dynamic of like obviously the revenue dried up to the extent that you're dependent on that revenue, but a lot of these chargers yeah. are not dependent on that revenue. So then the next question is like, what is this, what, what is going to happen to EV charging, which is just as important in my mind to build out in order to get people to buy EVs as it is to release the models in the first place. Yeah. I think it's interesting because to me, public chargers are, are a bit weird. If you look at the numbers, something like 85% of the energy that goes into EVs happens uh, from a level two charger that's primarily at home or maybe distant, distant second is at work. And so like the, the certainly like the EV Go model, the, the, the range anxiety charger delivers a very small fraction of total energy to uh, EVs, uh, but it's important for the EV buyer to have a sense that they can do the, the maybe the once a year, the once every two years cross-country trip that requires it. So to me, I think in a certain sense, Tesla has the, the smartest business model around this. Like for Tesla, the EV charging network is a way to make people secure in buying Teslas first and foremost. And I'm not really sure how much the public charging market is ever going to make sense 
uh, for anyone other than as an inducement either to, to buy an EV or if you're Whole Foods, you know, to get, I mean, gas stations were already headed in this way that with gas stations, most of the margin was coming from snack sales inside. And so I, I think that's even more clear in the, the EV world. I do want to point out, I think that's true for today's EV buyers. It is important to note that there's a huge portion of the U.S. population that is never going to be able to charge at home. And so if you're one of those people and you want to get one of those people an EV, you need, you know, pretty universal access to public charging. And I think it's also like Europe is even more that way. Well, so if you're deploying EV chargers, doesn't this make managed charging and ancillary services that much more important for revenue? Yeah, and the margin, I think so. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, doing managed charging does not make up for zero utilization if you're dependent on utilization of the 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 charger to earn revenue. But sure, I mean, it definitely places additional pressure on the cost side of the equation for you, which is a function of your largely of your electricity cost. I mean, my sort of dream model for uh, EV charging is that we should put the chargers in the places where the cars spend the longest periods of time, right? So the number two place to put them after homes is workplaces. And the number three is places like shopping centers and so on. And so, and especially if you, if we think we live in a world where across a large portion of the U S and the developing world, the cheapest electrons are going to be solar, uh, put them in the workplace so you can smart charge, you know, the vehicle during the day and so on. Obviously you have to still deal with winter and nighttime and so on. Um, so I'm not sure that really changes. And again, that's a world where the the major case for the charger is not the revenue you're getting by selling the electrons. There's another factor here. You may have outlined it. You outlined so many factors there, Shale, and that is just buying power, right? When As the economy starts to yeah. improve, I mean, we have an unemployment rate now that rivals the Great Depression. <laughs> so like households are going to be delaying purchases. Uh, we're going to see a slow phase up in the economy. We're going to see fits and starts. So like there are going to be fewer people buying cars and that's a uh, that's that doesn't bode well for electric vehicle purchases right i mean fewer people buying cars overall plus the possibility that people will be particularly budget conscious about the cars that they do buy and so to the extent that evs are at least for the next few years more expensive on an upfront basis that may actually hinder them relative to to ice vehicles and then the other piece of this is like public transit fleets and if you have local governments that are strapped for cash and they're not investing in their public transit systems, they're less likely to buy a fleet of electric buses, uh, you know, from Proterra or something like you're going to they're going to be problems in that market. Yeah, that one. I mean, it's to be determined how much of an impact this is going to have on fleet turnover for public transit. Um, I don't think we quite know that yet. The, you know, the one thing that did come out of the first, or I guess the fourth stimulus package that we've already had um, was $25 billion for public transit. Um, so that's not going to, you know, totally make up for the, the gaping hole on the revenue side for public transit fleets, but it is significant. Um, so they, they may be a little bit more resilient than you would imagine otherwise. But yeah, that could also be a factor where I think we're waiting to see. I will say some of these um, public transit bus uh, electrification projects, a lot of the money has been coming from federal grants to date because they're really, they're all in the U.S. It's primarily in pilot stage. It's not like China. Uh, so it's it's still small numbers. And again, my model is that at this stage of the market, the whole point is scale stuff so that it gets cheaper, so that it actually can start to win on a pure market basis. Now, th the last factor we haven't, we've danced around a few times, but haven't addressed head on that may ultimately be the most important swing factor in terms of the impact of COVID on, on EVs is the policy response and what the next mm -hmm. set of stimulus programs looks like and what it does and doesn't include related to this market. I don't think any of us can really predict it, but you know, what are your thoughts on the ways in which policy response to COVID might help or hinder the transition to EVs? I'm, well, first, I'd say the policy response is going to be different from different places around the world. And it's in the U.S., like anyone hoping for a green stimulus uh, in 2020, I think is hoping for something that I think is low probability. I'm hoping to, but I, I don't expect it to be likely. Now, frankly, I expect us to still be passing stimulus bills in 2021. 
uh, we really haven't passed any stimulus bills to date. What we have passed are stop the bleeding bills, and even those have not stopped the bleeding yet. So after we stop the bleeding, <laughs> there will still be it'll the federal government will still be able to borrow money at effectively zero percent interest, which means that it's still worthwhile to spend money to goose the economy. And so if you do the economically rational thing, I think in 2021, you'll be passing these stimulus bills. So that's the, the situation that in a different political landscape in the U.S., we could have a green stimulus that includes uh, more incentives for EVs or a cash for clunkers program or whatnot. All that being said, even if we don't do that in the U.S., we have to look at what's happening in Europe and China and India because the policy impact is global. Because again, that the major impact of any of these policies is like Germany subsidizing solar early on. The major impact isn't the number of units they drive in the short run. It's how they scale the tech, kick in those learning curve effects, and drive the tech to be cheaper in a way that has global spillovers. So, I mean, right now you already see the situation where the really cheap EVs aren't even being sold in the U.S. Even like GM's uh, cheapest EV ideas are just targeted at China. But eventually, but China's the largest auto market, right? But eventually, if those things get cheap enough and have performance that American consumers want, they'll end up being sold here. So that's what I'd watch is what's the, the spectrum of responses around the world. Yeah, what did Ed Crooks say in last week's episode? A crisis reinforces your existing priors. <laughs> so we'll probably see that when it comes to policy around broader clean energy solutions, but also electric vehicles specifically. So in Europe, you'll probably see an additional push. In the U.S., we probably won't see anything significant aside from maybe an extension of tax credits, maybe money through DOT to build out EV infrastructure. If Joe Biden is president, who knows? You'll probably get something more significant, but it'll be individual programs that are not couched as part of a green stimulus. And then in areas like, you know, India and China, where you have had the public suddenly seeing, you know, blue sky days every day, that starts to change some of the policy pressures to accelerate, you know, regulations and policies that will reduce air pollution and EVs are a part of that. So there, there could be an influence there as well. That's how I see maybe some of the bigger geographic shifts. Can I just close this segment out with... Uh... A statistic that will, I think, reflect the degree of uncertainty we have around EVs, even in the short term. I was just looking at, I was, I was trying to look up forecasts for EV sales in 2020. Wood McKenzie has released a forecast that they expect global EV sales to decline 43% year over year in 2020. Bloomberg just came out with their forecast. They did the smart thing and released three scenarios instead of one so they can allow <laughs> themselves a range. However, that range is anywhere between a 27% decline to a 3% increase. So if you just take the range of uh, low Woodmac to high Bloomberg, it's a 43% year-over-year decline to a 3% increase year-over-year in EV sales. And we're already you know, approaching halfway through the year. Mm -hmm. And this is the degree of uncertainty we have. I got to say, as somebody who, uh, you know, puts on stage a lot of graphs that go up and to the right, this year is going to mess up all my graphs in, in every sector. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Can we use the last bit of the conversation to think a bit bigger picture? So when we started off, Ramez, you said that as someone who is thinking about the future, and as someone who has thought about the future in terms of science fiction, you are a little bit more conservative in thinking about how this will shift um, our behavior and our consciousness. And a lot of people are toying with this, right? We're, uh, we're at this moment where the responses that we're seeing from governments, from organizations, from religious institutions telling people to stay home is that they're showing trust in science. Aside from a lot of the conspiracy theories and some of the protests we're seeing here in the U.S., the bulk of people who are responding to this crisis are doing it because the science is telling them, telling them that we need to social distance and we need to stay home. Does that influence how people think about scientific institutions, how they think about their relationship to science, or is this just a one-off thing? Like, is that is that something you see evolving because of this? So I think of this maybe like 30 degrees off of what you're saying, which is I think about it in terms of like the, you know, people, there's been a lot of posts written or articles written about 
COVID and climate change. And COVID is an analogy for climate change. Somebody, a, a journalist tweeted the other day that if, if you don't think that COVID is like really revelatory about climate change, you're an idiot. <laughs> and well, I guess I'm an idiot because I think it's actually quite different. And I think what we're seeing is actually fear. And people who are scared, like Americans, as much as we have a war over science, uh, doctors are a well-respected profession in, in America. People understand, for the most part, that infectious disease is real. The difference here, it's not about belief in science and so on. It's people understand that they or someone they love could get sick, very sick, go to the hospital and maybe die uh, in a very short time frame that they can conceptualize on the, the span of weeks, right? And that reason that I don't think this presages any greater belief in science that will lead to more climate action and more clean energy is because people are hyperbolic discounters, humans are, and so they still think about climate change as something that is decades and decades out there, and it's still, it's way too far in the future for them to really emotionally internalize. And frankly, you already see with COVID, you know, lockdown fatigue happening. Americans are more like self-locking down than governments are. Even in Georgia and Florida, you see people still not going out to shop or go to restaurants, even though the governor of Georgia says it's okay. Uh, but you see the numbers, the mobility numbers, Shale was talking about uh, heading back up. And so I, I think that people respond to short-term concrete threats differently than, than very long-term ones, sadly. I don't have any strong opinion here, but let, can I posit a scenario to you? And you could tell me if you, you think it would change mm -hmm. things. I mean, what if this summer, um, while we're still dealing with COVID and we're still in the midst of it and whatever version of it we're in, we happen to have a particularly bad year from a wildfire flooding and hurricane perspective. So what if we are dealing with the immediate effects of climate change while we're still in this fear of COVID world? Would that change things, do you think? I, a, I think that's a very plausible scenario. I think we've now got like a 65% chance 2020 will be the hottest year on record. Uh, California could see massive wildfires. Uh, and yet somehow people manage to politicize that. I mean, it, in the US, the hottest temperatures or the biggest temperature variation is actually felt in blue states. Uh, for whatever reason, we just got sort of unlucky. In fact, the center of the U.S. is places in the, on Earth that people live. It's the area that is showing the least, or one of the areas showing one of the least uh, temperature changes we have to date. Uh, and even in Australia, where you had these massive catastrophic uh, fires that, you know, for the whole country, captivated things, you don't really see a, a whole ton of, of change being driven off of that. So this, this sounds horribly pessimistic, but I'm not. But I still believe that the way that we're going to get out of this is not uh, by, you know, tons of fear. It's by creating and bootstrapping these new technologies and telling people, look, your EV is better. And it's, it's as cheap or cheaper, and it's better. Solar is cheap. You know, now we've got form energy coming with long-term storage. Clean energy. Everybody in America loves clean energy more than they love uh, coal. Like, you do poles. Solar is the most popular energy source in America. Wind, number two. Gas, a distant third. And coal, like, at the very, very bottom. Uh, people love EVs. And so I think the way forward isn't by uh, this, you know, respect science or fear, it's primarily that we can use that. It's primarily about, hey, this is a better option for you, the the positive affirmative case, it's clean, clean air and so on, and it's cheap and it's American innovation and all that. So we actually did a story on this this week on another show I produced, Climate Twenty Twenty Shale. We talked to local officials around the country who are dealing with hurricane preparedness right now while also dealing with the pandemic. And so they're pulling together all this protective equipment. They're figuring out what happens if you get someone who's infected with COVID in one of these hurricane shelters. It's a really complicated task. And most local governments are saying that they're not ready for this. Um, you've seen mayors all along the Mississippi River who have come out, Republican and Democratic mayors who've said, we are not prepared. Uh, you know, flooding season and hurricane season are a real threat to us in the middle of this pandemic. And FEMA 
is pretty unprepared for helping a lot of these local governments. Like it's a it's a potential catastrophe if you have one massive hurricane um, in an area where you have a decent amount of infections. So the way that you talk about this is is government preparedness. I don't think it's going to get people thinking about climate change in this broader scientific way. I think you say as a gov I mean these are the threats that you are facing and here's what we need to do to make sure that government can play a strong role from protecting you from these threats. And so if someone like Joe Biden can come in and try to link these things together in people's minds, not be exploitative about it, but be really clear about why you need to prepare for this stuff. I think there's an opportunity to capture the current moment. Um, that seems to me to be the obvious way to do it. Yeah, I don't want to be totally dismissive. Like, I, th I think that there is some opportunity there. Um, and I think it, it plays differently in different places. I think uh, it's also America's uh, 50 different states. And I think those uh, messages play differently in California and New York than they do in Iowa. Uh, though they're starting to play in Iowa. The, we had bad flooding in the Midwest uh, last year. And so I, I do think there's a chance to to use the COVID climate uh, metaphor or use it as, you know, as a dry run, if you will, for climate on uh, fast forward um, in certain places. Uh, but I will say that, you know, the reddest places in America are already uh, sort of becoming, you know, skeptical about COVID as well. So I'm not sure how well it's going to play there. <laughs> Okay, so wrapping up, let's talk about some future behavior changes that may occur. Again, I know you're skeptical about these behavior changes, but we're seeing a lot of people, uh, a lot of companies telling their employees to work uh, at, from home through the end of the year or well into next year. Clearly, that is going to change the way that people do their work and change transportation and driving habits. Um, remote learning will also do the same thing. We are having an extensive discussion about shortening supply chains, localizing supply chains, and that could drastically change um, the infrastructure around getting goods to us. Are there any other impacts that you're thinking about long term that tie into the way that we're behaving right now through this crisis? It's not energy, but I think this is going to drive a conversation in America about the safety net and about healthcare. Yes, and also universal basic income. No, I agree. I think that that those are areas that'll probably get a lot more attention. And I'll just close out with you know one optimistic big picture view, which is the energy transition continues. And while this is going to be uh, a road bump for every industry, gas cars, electric cars, energy production, whatever we still have this amazing phenomenon that the cost of clean energy, the cost of energy storage and new things like forms, long-term storage, the cost of electric vehicles are all plunging at paces that if you went back and told people in 2010, they would tell you, you, you know, what were you smoking, literally. And so that incredible pace of innovation and of uh, clean technologies getting cheaper and better than dirty technologies still gives me hope. I still think we're on the path. And I still think, uh, actually, I think that we might have pulled forward the peak of coal demand and the peak of uh, oil demand uh, by a couple years. Ramez Nam, this was such a treat. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Ramez Nam is a futurist. He's an award-winning science fiction author, and he is an energy analyst. You can go find a lot of his talks there on YouTube, and we'll provide a link to his work. Shail Khan is my co-host. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. We are a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. You can find all of us there on social media. Hit us up if you want to comment on this show or provide any story ideas, and give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate the support. Thanks for listening. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media.